the Roman Empire, the new kid on the block. Rome began as a city-state whose major political genius exceeded its sense of culture. What that means is that Rome had no sense of culture. They had no art of their own. They had no real religious identity of their own. They had no real sense of fashion in any kind of way or customs or rituals. Their genius was their understanding of politics and law. They took the idea of politics and law that the Greeks had begun to develop and they perfected it. And then Rome basically absorbed everybody else's culture. Kind of like of America. America is not really known for our own unique culture, at least when we were first found. They were known for forming a form of government and an economy that the world had really never seen before. They had seen glimpses of it. It had been laid out in Plato's Republic, but when nobody had really implemented Plato's Republic before until America. And they took a mixture of Rome and Plato's Republic and, of course, the Christian sense of we don't trust humans, checks and balances, and we put it all together with a few other things sprinkled in. And that's what we became unique for. But what we were was a, a melting pot. We didn't have our own culture. We didn't have our own sense. We were a melting pot. Rome was the first melting pot of the ancient world. They basically took all the Greek gods and renamed them after planets. Zeus became Jupiter and Mars, Hades became Mars. They adopted the Greek way of sports and athletics. They adopted Greek education, the Greek entertainment. They absorbed everybody's culture because they had no of their own culture. But their genius was politics and government. And that's what made them a powerhouse. And because they were so disciplined, more disciplined than anybody else, that's what made them a military powerhouse. It was their discipline and their ability to do anything in order to accomplish a task is what made them so superior to all their cultures. We want to kind of get an idea of what these cultures, their focus was. The focus of the Jews, Yahweh is the measure of everything. Whatever Yahweh is and whatever he says, as spoken through the law and the prophets, that is what is truth. That is the measure of all things. That is culture. For the Greeks... Man and his intellect was the measure of all things. What man thinks, what man can reason, what man can accomplish with his human body and his hands and skill, that was the measure of all things. That determined culture. That's why the Greeks, other than the, the, the Egyptians, have one of the most fully developed, artistic, beautiful cultures that we, many, many people to this day, admire, and more History Channel movies and stuff are done in the Greeks and, and the Egyptians than any other culture because of that. And then if you don't do anything on the Greeks and the Romans, you're doing, or the Gr Greeks and the Egyptians, you're doing on the Romans because we're all obsessed with military. And that's what we admire them for. That was the measure of all things for the Greeks. For the Romans, the government ruled by law was the measure of all things. And that's what they became known for. So by the time the Jews come along, they're going to be a mixture of Yahweh, culture, and government and law. Because they're going to be influenced by all these people. The Roman idea was great statesmanship, not the search for good, truth, beauty, as in Greece. Greece was obsessed with what is truth. 
beauty. I want to know what the truth is. I, if, the closer I can get to God, the God force, if you study the mystery religions with me, the better I'll understand truth. Reason. I want to know what is good. I want to know what is beautiful. They're obsessed with art and truth and beauty and reflecting that in art. Rome, they didn't care about truth. They, they weren't interested in what was good. They weren't interested in what is truth. This is why they had no problem violating every moral law you could possibly imagine just to have their power dominate. This is why when Jesus stands before Pilate and Pilate says, what is truth? Like, who cares? He wasn't asking that in a philosophical question like, hey, let's figure out what truth is together. This would be a great philosophical thing between two prophets or between two philosophers. His basically answer is, what is truth? Truth is whatever you want it to be today. If you're guilty today, so be it. If you're not guilty today, that's, that's truth. It's that. And that's what the Romans believed. They didn't really care about morality, truth, beauty, any of that kind of stuff. It was about power, government, structure, order. It's kind of like 1984. As long as we have power and structure and nobody steps out of place, that's what's important. Efficiency. They would have been phenomenal in the Industrial Revolution. Okay, they would have rocked it big time. Thus, Rome's constitutional system was a balance of monarchy, the council, oligarchy, the senate, and democ democracy, the assemblies, elements. This is where we get the idea of three branches of government. And the fear of the gods held it all together. Okay, all they cared about was not offending the gods because they knew that ultimately the gods approved of your existence or didn't. And remember, the gods don't care about morality either. All you're doing is trying to make the gods happy. If you make the gods happy, then that's all that matters. Rome was highly Hellenized, taking, absorbing foreign cultures, ideas, religions. Rome is the Greek word for strength. It's the Greek. They don't even have their own word for strength that they call their capital Rome. Rome's not a Latin word. It's a Greek word for strength, power. Between 260 and 146, they were fighting a two-front war. The first one was with Carthage. Carthage was North Africa. And there was a man by the name of Hannibal who was building his own empire. And Carthage pretty much was superior to Rome in so many ways. And he was dominating the Mediterranean Sea. And Rome fought against him, mostly naval battles fought around Sicily. Many of the battles were fought in that little island that looks like the boot is kicking. And Hannibal even made it into Rome with his elephants, but he underestimated the cold winters of the mountains of Rome, and his elephants froze, and he lost his foothold, and that was the turning point in what was called the Punic Wars. This is a series of three major wars that were fought between 260 and 146. With the defeat of Carthage, Rome came into control all of the Western Mediterranean. At the same time, Rome also fought what was called the Macedonian Wars. Macedonia dominated the eastern part of the Mediterranean. They were the leftovers of Alexander III's empire there. As they were fighting the Macedonian Wars, they were also breaking the backs of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. By 148, they had won these four battles in the east. By 148 BC, they had gained control of the entire Mediterranean world. No empire had ever done that. Remember, Alexander the Great was the first one to conquer the eastern side. 
of the world and the western side. He brought these two worlds together. But nobody had controlled all the Mediterranean. If you control all the Mediterranean, you are the king of the world. You don't have to control anything else in the world. Because the Mediterranean is where most trade comes through. It is, I know the earth is a ball and there is no center. But politically and economically, the Mediterranean is the center of the world. Whoever controls that controls the world. And specifically, whoever controls Israel controls the world. Because in the ancient world, Israel is the center of all trade. It controls most of the resources, especially a monopoly on salt, the Dead Sea. And today, it's now the monopoly on oil. And so it's always been about this part of the world. It's always been about, about this part of the world. And so they had successfully controlled it. At this point, it's just a matter of time before everybody else falls to their power. By 188 BC, Rome had taken most of the territories of the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and by 168 BC, they were both under Roman control, paying Roman tax. In 133 BC, the Roman Republic was thrown into social upheaval, and in 90 BC, the civil wars began. Now, these civil wars that are happening in Rome is the same time that the civil wars in Israel were happening between the two brothers. During the civil wars, Pompey established himself as a military leader and statesman by sweeping the Mediterranean of pirates and bringing the remaining Seleucid territories under Roman control. It was during this time that Pompey marched into Syria, and in 67 BC, he sided with Hyrcanus II. By 55 BC, the Roman Empire was controlling most of the world. Now, when Pompey dies, Julius Caesar is going to take over, and John Hyrcanus II is going to surrender absolute control over, of Israel to Rome. And he's going to lose Israel's political independence for the sake of power. And he's not even going to get power as a result of it. Everything that his father, great-grandfather Mattathias, had fought to gain, and everything that his great-grand or his grandfather had gained, Simon, and in political independence in 142, he gave it all up to have power that Rome never even gave to him. It did not last long, their political independence. Now, the Constitution of the Roman Republic was a complex set of checks and balances designed to, pre designed to prevent one person from increasing in power to the point of creating monarchy. Rome used to have a monarchy, and it practically destroyed them. And they feared that day would ever come again. And so their law was largely bit or built around not ever having a monarchy. Most of their laws were about preventing one man from having power. However, that didn't sit well with Julius Caesar. He wanted to be an emperor. In order to circumvent these checks, three Roman generals, Julius Caesar, Pompey, and Crassius, forged a secret alliance. They called themselves the Triumvirate. However, we know them now as the first triumvirate because some are going to follow after that, in which they agreed to help each other to maintain a great deal of power and control in the Republic. Now, Julius Caesar was largely a statesman, a very politically powerful, wealthy landowner who was very successful in the military soldiers and cavalry. Pompey had his own cavalry and soldiers, but was largely navy. And then Crassius was mostly politics, mostly Congress. And so the three of them decided, look, there's no way that one man can ever have total power because of the checks and balances in Rome. But if we come from the three areas of Rome and work together, maybe at least the three of us can have more power 
than anybody else and have more power than we could ever have on our own. And so this was their circumventing the anti-monarchy checks and balances in Rome. So these are men who basically are greedy for power and willing to do anything to get it, even violate their own law. And in Rome, law is everything. Even they would say law is supreme and everything. And you never violate the law as they're trying to find loopholes to go around the law in order to become the ruler of the law. So this shows you how power hungry they are. Upon Crassius' death, the balance was upset. Pompey and Julius Caesar didn't really get along a lot. Crassius was the balance. He was the odd man that kept everything going. But this upset. So they went into war. Caesar released his control of the army, having secured control of Gaul. He was all the way in Gaul. Well, we know France. He was over in Gaul, seizing power. And he defeated Gaul. Once he defeated Gaul, he was supposed to release his control of the Roman army. Now, in that, the way they had set it up, no general commanded an army all the time. You basically like went to the army station and they're like, we want you to go to war and defeat these people. So you checked out your army and signed your name and you're like, okay, army, come with me and you go and defeat them. And once you defeat the army, then Rome would say, check your army back in at the door, okay, and sign it back out. Is it all in good shape? Back in, not literally, but kind of that idea. He was then told, you defeated Gaul, check your army in. And he said, no. Now that angered the Senate because you're supposed to check your army in. We have complex roles for doing this, okay? So their OCD is going through the roof right now on this. In 49 BC, Julius Caesar refused and crossed the Rubicon River. Now the Rubicon River was the border of Rome, the Roman city, state, not Rome as the empire. Rome had a law that basically said you're not allowed to have active military soldiers on Roman soil. That's a violation of the law that's considered insurrection. We have that same rule. You're not allowed to have active military people unless we declare what? Martial law. But that takes an act of Congress in order to make that happen. So you're not allowed to have active duty military soldiers on domestic soil. So when he crossed the Rubicon, he was basically saying, I'm taking over. And the Senate saw this and resisted, but they couldn't stop him because he's one of the greatest generals the world ever seen. And the army was loyal to him. They were extremely loyal to him because they fought together. Civil war then ensued between him and Pompey. Now, Pompey isn't angry that he's trying to become dictator. He's angry that he's trying to become dictator, not himself. He wanted to do it. So they begin to fight each other. The Senate backs Pompey, and Pompey backs them because he doesn't like the fact that Julius Caesar is doing this. And so then he defeats Pompey, Pompey in 48 BC. The war came to an end only for a short time. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar proclaimed himself perpetual dictator. A not quite full dictator, but perpetual dictator. Like, I'm not going away, and I'm going to be here, and I'm slowly going to grab more and more power over time. In response, a group of senators led by Gaius Cassius and Marcus Brutus assassinated Julius Caesar. Brutus wasn't completely on board with killing. I mean, that's a murder. I uphold the law. We're not just going to go murder him because we don't like what he's doing. We should fight him in the court system. So he was against it. But Cassius, Cassius convinced him that Julius Caesar was out of control, that he wasn't going to stop, that there was no law that was going to defeat him. So Brutus ended up giving in to this. They came up with this plan that murder is wrong. 
And if we murder him, we're the law. We have to prosecute the person who murders it. But who wants to be prosecuted for murder when we're trying to protect the Senate? Rome. This is for the good of Rome. So they all got knives and they stabbed him. Like 40-something of them stabbed him multiple times. And he, he basically tried to... The, the scene is gruesome. It, they, they describe him like slipping his own blood and grabbing their coats. And he fought tooth and nail. And a lot of them said that if it hadn't been him slipping in his own blood and then not being able to get back up because he was slipping in his own blood, he probably would have been able to take them all out because they weren't fighting men. And eventually he bled out to death. And everything went hazy, and he started going unconscious in shock. And that's when he saw Brutus. And we don't know exactly what he said, but he said something like, I can't believe you did it too, kind of thing. Shakespeare just made it very poetic. So, and so he died. Why did they do this? Because nobody actually knew what killed him. So you can't prosecute anybody for murder. If you don't know what nice stab, in fact, most scholars believe that the way that it was described, that he actually bled out to death, he wasn't actually stabbed to death, which technicality. But that's the whole point. You can't prosecute for anybody for murder when you don't know whose knife wound actually killed him. So that's how they got rid of him. Now at this point... That's not going to sit well with his great-nephew, Octavian. Now, Octavian was technically his nephew, but he became adopted as son. Julius Caesar had several sons. One son he had with a woman by the name of Cleopatra, and, but none of his sons were legitimate. And he couldn't name any of them as his successor because they weren't Roman. And they weren't pure-blooded Roman. And even Julius Caesar knew you could not have a non-pure-blooded Roman ruling over Rome. Rome is Rome. He never named any of his sons um, as a successor because his sons were always with other women of other cultures that he was out conquering somewhere. He never had his own biological pure-blooded Roman son. Octavian was a military genius. He was, inc- he was like, this guy could beat anybody in chess. Probably could beat the computer in chess. And so he was a strategist, and he adopted him as his heir. And in his will, he appointed Octavian as his heir. In some ways, Rome has to acknowledge this because it is a legitimate will of a senator, and he's getting all of his stuff. At the other sense, they don't have to because Julius Caesar did this in a legal way. But at the same time, Octavian is actually pretty ticked that his uncle has been killed. And so Octavian takes the army that was loyal to Julius Caesar, and he, along with Mark Antony, Mark Antony is the Roman general. Mark Antony is the Latin dancer singer. Don't confuse him. Mark Antony was um, Julius Caesar's right-hand man. And he, he joined with Octavian only for the sake of getting revenge for Julius Caesar. Although Mark Antony wanted to lead and become the next dictator, but so did Octavian. The problem is Octavian outsmarted Mark Antony. So they formed this second triumvirate. This was with them, and they began to fight against Rome, and they defeated the conspirators at the Battle of Philippi in 42 BC. So everybody who was largely at the top of the conspiracy, killing Julius Caesar, they took revenge. Soon, once that was accomplished, their common goal was over with, so they began to fight with each other. Mark Antony became involved with Cleopatra VII. Now, Cleopatra VII, we think her and Julius Caesar genuinely fell in love with each other. 
And, but Julius Caesar left her in Egypt because she was a descendant of Ptolemy, and she's ruling Egypt. And she desperately wanted to make her son. She wanted to merge the Seleucids, the Greeks, with the Romans, and she believed that her son should be the next leader of Rome. And so she constantly went to Rome over and over and over again, trying to get Julius Caesar to acknowledge her son as his legitimate son, as the heir. And she kept doing this over and over again. That She knew she had no hope of surviving in this new world if, Rome wasn't, if her son wasn't a part of Rome. And so this was her desperation. Mark Antony came along, and she seduced Mark Antony. Now, it seems that she might have later fell in love with him for legitimately. And Mark Antony is just like whipped, totally whipped. Roman soldier who like cuts people's heads off because he thinks it's fun in battle becomes this like whipped man and just will do anything that she says, literally. That's how he's described. So Octavian used that. He said, look, Mark Antony, who's fought with you, he's betrayed Rome. He's siding with the Seleucids. He's sucking face with this woman all the time. Like, you can't have this. This is not good. He's betrayed you all for a woman and not even a Roman woman. And the military's like, yeah. And so they join Octavian. And, of course, Mark Antony lost his army now because they think he's betrayed the boroughs. And so he, all he has is the Egyptian military. So they launch into this huge war with each other, and Octavian just smashes them. He outthinks Mark Antony in every kind of a way. And so eventually, he defeats them. Now, when he defeats them, Mark Antony, thinking that Cleopatra's dead, ends up committing suicide because his love is gone. And so Cleopatra then, while he's dying, reveals that she's actually alive, but then she's sad. So Octavian says, come back with me to Rome and we're going to prosecute you. And she says, let me go to my gods and pray to them one more time. So Octavian said, okay. She first tried to seduce Octavian, but he's like, no, I'm not having any of that. That worked with the other two guys, but not me. She's like, okay. So she went in and used a a viper, and she had it bite herself to poison. We don't know if she had the viper poison herself or she injected the venom herself into her, and she died along with her servants. And Octavian was like, well, I guess that saves us taxpayer money is in the court system prosecuting her and just went back home. He didn't really care. Well, the other two guys were really head over heels for her. He was like, don't really care. So when he came back, the Roman wars were finally at an end after decades of this. So Octavian gave power back to the Senate, relinquished control of all the armies and the Roman providences. But in reality, he maintained complete leg- legislative power. Because what Octavian learned is if you try to take force by power, it will not work out. So if you give the power back to them, they'll be so thankful that they'll give you power, and then you can work the system to slowly give it to you over time. And that's what he did. If they give it to you, they can't complain. If you take it by force, they'll try to fight you. So that's what he learned. They were so thankful that he brought all this civil war in. They were so shocked that he gave the power back. They were like, okay, okay. And the way he worded it, the way that he got it signed, basically gave him a very, very powerful legislative power. In 27 BC, the Senate gave him the titles Augustus, which means the illustrious one, which basically means the divine one. The divine one. He became a god. And the princeps, the first in order, so they basically named him king. 
prime minister, king, whatever you want to call it, he became the senior power. And then he declared emperor worship. Everybody had to worship him as emperor. Augustus became his new name, and he began to rule. Now, by the way, this is where a lot of months of our calendar come from. July is from Julius Caesar. August is from Augustus. So September is a Roman god. Our days of the week and our months of the year are basically come from Roman either generals or gods or that kind of stuff. Except for Thursday and Friday, those are Viking gods. So like Thor, Thor's day, and Friday is a goddess. These are where we get our names for our days of the week and months. Oh, that's also October, Octavian. He did not officially proclaim himself emperor, but his actions and policies end up giving him enough power that it would make it easier for emperors to come along later. So he was kind of in this gray area of whether he was truly an emperor or not. But because of the way he made policies, he made it possible that pretty much after his death, they would be emperors. And everybody from that point on would be an emperor, a dictator over the Roman Empire. One of the most major things that he did, what he's most well known for, is what's called the Pax Romana. The Pax Romana literally means the Peace of Rome. And he formed these documents. It's not really an official document. It's just a time period. It's a 200-year period of peace where they had real no, no civil wars, no wars with other in any side, and within Roman providences in any kind of way. They went out to war and added more territories to the Roman providences, but there would be no more war within the providences of Rome for 200 years. And so it became known as the Peace of Rome. But what backed this up was a whole set of policies. So no official um, document like the Constitution, but a whole series of policies that basically maintained peace at the highest order. And so basically what this law did, these policies did, is it looked at everything in the Roman Empire and said, would this contribute to peace or disrupt the peace? And laws would be made based on that. Now, this isn't peacemaking. This is peacekeeping. Peacemaking is when you have two people who hate each other and they're fighting with each other and everything in them wants to either withdraw and say, well, I'm not going to deal with this. Let's just leave each other and never be with each other anymore. That's called peacekeeping. You sweep everything under the rug and you don't talk about it and you don't deal with it because it's a lot easier just to act like nothing is happening and have fun because actually resolving conflict is very difficult and is very emotional, very stressful, and nobody really, most people don't want to do that. I mean, nobody wants to do it, but many people are willing to do it. Peacemaking is when you're willing to endure the conflict in order to have the hash it out and emotions and crying and anger and upset and all that kind of stuff, because you know in the end you'll resolve everything and get it dealt with, and you'll negotiate something and see the other person's side, and you'll truly have peace, and there will be nothing under the surface anymore, and you're not faking it anymore. Rome was a peacekeeper. And basically the idea is nothing threatens the peace. And the best way that we'll maintain the peace is crucifixion. If any time you ever get out of line, we'll just come in and stomp on you so hard as a little ant that you are with our boot that you'll never ever want to rebel again and nobody won't rebel either. So what do we do? We will find the most bloody, violent, horrific in your face way to deal with you that it will be so nightmarish 
then nobody will ever look at that and say, I'll disrupt the peace for the sake of what I want. Nobody will fight for their rights against Rome. Nobody will fight for truth or morality or justice against Rome, whatever they think it is, because that will lead to that. And the most favorite way was crucifixion. And crucifixion to this day is the most horrific, painful way to die that any human has ever come up with in the history of mankind, even to this day. Flogging is right up there with it. And they would crucify you by the hundreds. The more, and they, when they crucified you, unlike the movies, they didn't put Jesus and the, 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 the thieves on a hill way far away up there in the distance that you just see the silhouette. They put you on the side of 161 High Street. They made sure that when you walked by, you, were, you could reach out and touch them, and you could practically look them right in the eyes as they spent a week suffocating to death on the cross. And they would begin to rot on the cross, and animals would begin to feed off their bodies as they were alive. And you would have to watch your loved ones who rebelled go through this. Every day you went in and out of the city to get water, to trade, that kind of stuff. Because if you had to see that every day, and you knew that Rome was a better at it than you were, then you wouldn't disrupt the peace. And that's how, that was really mainly what the Pax Ramona was. Now, there was, a, there was a whole bunch of other laws and other things about it. But the way that they maintained rebellions and kept them down was that way. We will just massacre you and violate you in the most horrible way that you'll never want to do it again. Or your friends and family will want to do it again. And we'll do it so well and so efficiently and so quickly, you'll think there's no hope. If they couldn't do it, then how in the world am I going to do it? And they ruled by fear. It's like having an alcoholic father that you're just walking on eggshells because you don't know what's going to set him off that day. One thing that they did begin to realize is by requiring everybody to do emperor worship in Israel and by requiring them to worship the gods and sacrifice the gods, this actually upset the Jews. The Jews actually feared going into exile more than they feared death. And they were so determined to never displease God again and to never go into exile again, never be cut off from the covenant or the promises of the land ever again, that they were willing to die because death was better than the God being displeased with you and punishing you. Everybody else in the world was worshiping multiple gods. So when Rome said, worship the emperor, they're like, okay, What's an, a God in 102 added to the 101 that I already have? I'll just light a candle for him. But the Jews, they might have made other things idolatrous, like laws and their power, but they never ever worshipped other gods ever again. And so they weren't willing to do it. They were willing to die. The Rome would try to make them worship the gods, and they would rebel, and Rome would massacre them in crucifixions and stomp on them in bloody ways. And then they would say, worship the emperor. And the Jews would rebel again. They would smash them. And it actually began to disrupt the peace. This constant rebellion was disrupting the peace no matter what they did. Everybody else stopped. But the Jews never stopped. And then other people got the idea surrounding, well, my goodness, the Jews aren't giving up. Maybe we'll side with them. And there will be power in numbers and we can overcome Rome. So under the Pax Ramona, Octavian, Augustus, exempted Israel from emperor worship. And he gave them religious of freedom of religion. And he said, you don't have to worship any other gods. You don't have to worship the emperor in any kind of a way. You're exempt under the Pax Ramona. And as long as you pay your taxes to Rome, 
and, is, and you're not allowed to give the death penalty to people without Rome's permission, and you're not allowed to do this and this without Rome's permission. But other than that, we'll give you freedom of government and freedom of religion because you're like the only people who just will not give up no matter what the consequences are. And right now we don't have the power or the numbers just to massacre you all. But well, 135 AD, I told you, at that point, Rome was powerful enough and had enough control in that region that they said, forget the Pax Ramona now. We're done with you. We're killing you all. So it only lasted for so long before Rome lost it. So Israel was exempt with emperor worship because of the Pax Ramona and because of their stubbornness. Upon Augustus' death, he was succeeded by his son Tiberius. When Jesus is born, we're now on the scene of Jesus. Let's just start looking more familiar now to the world of Jesus. When Jesus is born, we're told that in the days of Augustus, Jesus was born. But when Jesus is dying, it's Tiberius. So the switch from Augustus to Tiberius happens somewhere between Jesus as a 12-year-old boy to him becoming his ministry. By the time he begins his ministry, it's Tiberius. And when the Jews are saying to Pilate, we'll go to Caesar, they're talking about Tiberius. Now, in honor and tribute of Julius Caesar, Augustus' uncle, he decided to also call himself Caesar. And he decided that the new name for every leader at this point would be Caesar. Every emperor since Julius Caesar is all called Caesar because it's a tribute to his uncle who was massacred by the Senate. So Tiberius becomes the new Caesar. He was one of the greatest Roman generals ever. He expanded the empire far greater extents than anybody else ever had. He conquered more land by himself as a general than any other general had before him expand the territory greatly, moving into your Europe more deeply than anybody else ever had. However, he was remembered as a gloomy recluse of a ruler who never really desired to be emperor. It seems that he never actually wanted to be emperor, but he became emperor. He really just wanted to be a general, and that's it. And once he got done conquering a lot of land, and it means that he would have to go really far away, he realized that he couldn't travel that far anymore at the point that the Roman Empire was. So he came back to Rome, and when he came back to Rome, he just got really depressed, really gloomy. I mean, if he lived today, he would be nicknamed Eeyore. And he just basically became a recluse and a hermit. And after a while, by the end of his life, nobody really ever saw him. He basically just communicated with the outside world with a few of his delegates. He surrounded himself with the Praetorian Guard, which is their version of the um, Secret Service, and he appointed two prefects, which is their version of a governor, Sejanus and Navius Satoris Marco. These two guys pretty much began to run the Roman Empire. On big major decisions, they would go to Tiberius and ask him what he wanted, but from this point on, the entire world only saw these two men, and Tiberius mostly ruled through them. So that is the Romans.